I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Join us for a journey as we go back to the great civilizations of the past. Who were the people? What were they like? How did they begin and how did they end? Let's find out on episode 29, Dido. Previously on Fan of History, two siblings, the older sister Dido and the younger brother Pygmalion, inherit the rule of the Phoenician city of Tyre. Dido marries her rich uncle, but her younger brother is making plans to seize all of the power for himself. Powerful Assyrian super king Shalmaneser III grew old. Three powerful men now fight for control of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. So Dan, what is happening with these crazy siblings? Well, we're going to talk a lot about that, but first we have to set the stage for the Assyrian Empire, which figures a lot in this episode. Uh, Shalmaneser III is the king of Asher, or Asher's chosen king, king of Assyria. The Assyrian Empire is the strongest state by far in the Near East. Uh, Shalmaneser III has been around since 859 BC. There were alliances of nations fighting him, but they're these alliances have all crumbled. Mm-hmm. The three powerful men are Dian Asher, the field marshal, the Turdanu, who controls the army. There are two powerful princes as well, Asur Daninpal and Shamshi Raman. Um, they vie for power and their father's approval, and the noblemen have gained power. The Assyrian noblemen, once back... Uh, Assyria has been around for a thousand years or more. Right. And once Assyria was ruled by powerful noble families, and the kings have been around since uh, maybe 500 years. But these noble families are always a problem. They didn't dare do anything during the days of Ashurnasipal II or when Shalmaneser III was powerful, but now he's growing old and tired. That is a recipe for rebellion. <laughs> yes, I found some new information. I'm reading a book about this, the Assyrian Empire. I did a lot of research last year for the YouTube show, and I'm mainly using that research. But now I find something I did not cover on the on the YouTube show, and I let's meet the Assyrian palace wife Mulisu Mukanishat 
Ninua. <laughs> this name means <laughs> the goddess Mulisso is the one who submits to Nineveh. And Nineveh is one of the three Assyrian core cities of old. Um, mm -hmm. Mulisso is the goddess who is the wife of Asher. And I still can't get my head around this Assyrian religion because they only have one god. And then they have a lot of gods and they are all the same. <laughs> but it looks a lot like Babylonian religion. Uh, I don't think it holds when you try to question the Assyrians. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, questioning someone's religion <laughs> on, on whether it's logical, Dan? But it's very consistent. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, Mulissu may or may not be identical to the Mesopotamian goddess Ninlil, the wife of Enlil. And Enlil is kind of the Asher figure in Babylonian religion. Okay. She's also identified with Ishtar, and the Assyrians like Ishtar a whole lot. Uh, submits to Nineveh, that's like a goddess submitting to city. That probably just means that this palace wife is from Nineveh. Ah, okay. Nineveh will later become the capital, and it will be the greatest of all the Assyrian capitals. We'll talk a lot about, uh, a lot about that later. So this woman, Mulissu Mukanishat Ninua, her tomb was found by Iraqian, uh, Iraqi archaeologists in Kala. That's the capital right now, then, or in, in the 820s BC. Shalman mm -hmm. is the third capital that his father built and had that great party in. <laughs> uh, so this tomb was found next to wife of Tiglath Peleser III, and that's 80 years later. Uh, the Assyrian king had many wives, but the palace wife is uh, probably the queen, the closest thing to queen in Assyria. Okay. We found a tomb text written on the sarcophagus and also on a stone tablet. So there were two copies of this text. And here is the text. This tomb belongs to Melissa Mukanishat Ninwa, palace wife to Ashurnasapal, king of the world, and to Shalmaneser, king of the world. No one may in the future bury any harem lady or palace wife here, or remove the sarcophagus from this place. The one who removes the sarcophagus from this place, his spirit will not receive any sacrifices for the dead, together with the other spirits. This is a curse from the gods Shemash and Elishkagal. I was the daughter of Ashur Nirkadaini, head cupbearer of Ashurnasirpal, king of Assyria. The one who in future removes my throne from the table of the spirits, his spirit will receive neither water nor bread. Someone will instead in the future cover me with a blanket, rub me with oil, and sacrifice a sheep for me. The giant palace in Kala, Ashurnasipal's second palace, was um, sort of had different levels where mm -hmm. you gained access. So only the king gained access to the very inner chambers, but the palace wife had uh, a lot of access as well, and um, she had her own quarters as well. And the weird thing that she mentions both Ashurnasipal and Chalmaneser means that she was probably young enough uh, when Ashurnasipal II died that his son married her as well. <laughs> and that was not common. It was definitely not the rule. So. She was probably quite a breathtaking woman. And it is quite possible that she is the mother of the next king. 
but it's hard to tell. But this very important tomb then, because she died, she probably died after Shalmaneser. Or maybe she died during his reign and he was so smitten by her still that she got this amazing tomb. Right. But we haven't found many tombs like this. Hmm. So she looks super important. How many writings um, of, you know, from any queen have we seen, you know, from this time period? It seems like, uh, you know, we see the, the rare things we do get are all, you know, from the men. How many uh, in all? Yes. Uh, in fact, there is a lot of information on Assyria we don't have access to in the current political state. Mm. So uh, things, a lot of interesting Assyrian places are not fully excavated yet. And there is uh, a lot of work for archaeologists to be done in Iraq if there is ever peace. Uh, so we could easily learn a whole lot more. There is a lot of Assyrian uh, correspondence, like normal letters right. preserved. Uh, from this time and onwards, uh, from the middle of the 8th century BC, we get a lot more. So, uh, in fact, we could learn a lot more about the Assyrian woman, women later. Okay. And if they could just calm down in Iraq, we, <laughs> we could get that into this. Yeah, I'll ask for that for Christmas. There will be an Assyrian queen who is more famous than than any other Assyrian, I think. Mm -hmm. More famous than any of the kings, but it's all lies. But it's based on a real person. And we'll dedicate a full episode to the amazing legends of Semiramis, queen of the world who allegedly ruled Assyria, who allegedly founded Assyria, and founded Babylon, and founded Armenia, and went to Japan. <laughs> <laughs> she is a superhero. <laughs> I was going to say, this is impossible. <laughs> I, I try to stay away from the legendary material, but her legendary material is just too good not to talk about. Awesome. So it's, it's coming up in a couple of episodes, actually. We'll talk about Queen of the Universe. But um, she's based on a real person then, but Mulishu Mukanishat Ninua, she is quite real. Um, also, the fact that she is from Nineveh probably means that she's from one of these noble families. And that means that the noble families are quite powerful still because they get to marry the king. Uh, the later, later Sargonite kings, they will marry foreign princesses and make them the palace wives as a step for international diplomacy. Mm -hmm. But now it's more important to make the noble families of Assyria happy than to make foreign powers happy, because there are no foreign powers powerful enough to challenge Assyria. Right. But there are foreign powers powerful enough to irritate Assyria. <laughs> Such as Urartu. 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 Is it Urartu in English? Urartu. Urartu or Urartu? I would say Urartu. Okay, it's uh, becoming a superpower to the north of Assyria in the mountains. And I just read a geographical description here. Uh, mm -hmm. And from this core, the heartland of Assyria, you just have pretty much this wall of mountains right to the north. And it's impassable. So in order to get to Urartu, you have to go around either to the west or to the east. 
So your rotor is actually quite close to Assyria, but it's you can't get between the two. Ah, that makes sense. And that's why the Assyrians are so scared of a powerful state to the north. So in 829 BC, Dian Asher, the field marshal, he attacks mm -hmm. the north, and he is. Uh, he can't invade the Rotor because the mountain fortresses are too strong. The Rotian army has grown powerful. Uh, Sarduri is the king of Rotor. So they fight in Kubushkia, which is one of these small states that are between the two powerful nations. Uh, so they, they fight for this little state and uh, uh, nothing much happens. And Dian Asher goes east after the fight and plunders the Maneans and the Persians, probably in frustration. And then he's back next year. So in 828, he again attacks. He again attacks wow. uh, this time in Musasir. And Musasir is a weird place because it's tightly connected to Urartu and it's right to the south of Urartu. It's just a city and its surrounding area. But it has religious significance for the Urartians. And it, they are allied to Saduri's uh, nation. And, um, well, uh, there is a fight. It is pretty much a draw. And then Dian Asher goes back to Kubushka, where he was last year. And then finally, wait a minute. He, no, he, he attacks and plunders Musasir. That's what happens. Okay. And the small uh, state of Gilsan pays tribute. But Sarduri is not broken and he looks more powerful ever than ever. So now if something were to happen to the Assyrians, <clears throat> the Urartians would be a big threat. Yeah, there's uh because it seems like all the Urartians have to do is let the Assyrians, you know, bash themselves against the rocks. And yes. it becomes a, an attrition game at that point. That's definitely the plan. But in this year, 828 BC, Saduri I of Urartu dies. And he has only been the king for six years. We don't know why he died. He was doing quite well against the yeah. Assyrians. And the throne passes peacefully to his son, Ishpuini. And this is the third king. <laughs> of Urartu, and just for the uh, Assyrian Empire, Ashurnasipal II was the third king. And this guy is uh, the charm. It's uh, now Urartu kicks off. This is a powerful king, and he will uh, conquer new territory, because he can't get into Assyria, because the Assyrians are far too powerful. But he can conquer stuff to the west, to the north, and to the east. And he does. So now Urartu is um, the second most powerful state in the Near East. Uh, wow. Egypt is around, of course, but Egypt is uh, not that powerful. So I, I think this is definitely the second most powerful state. Uh, there is considerable social, industrial, and military improvements in Rartu. And they have been building their society on Assyria. But now they reject the Assyrian language and they start to make their own inscriptions. And this is pretty much cuneiform, but it's their way. They're, they write their language in it. Okay. And every time they write something in stone, they have to repeat it three times for magical purposes. 
But this means then that we now have Urartian sources. Whoa, okay. So we can sometimes get uh, the conflict between Urartia and Assyria. This will be going on for quite some time. So when, uh, you, when you are talking about they write it three times, like they actually write the exact same thing three times? Yes. So, sort of like in the tomb of the palace wife, there, the same thing was written two times. And there might have been a third inscription that is lost. Okay. So writing a thing three times means uh, it's great. There is magic. It's awesome. <laughs> it's awesome, yes. So, um, yeah, we will see Urartu be a problem. And sometimes we get their conflicts from both sides, and there are big discrepancies in what they write about what happened. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there are. So if, if one side wins a major battle, the other side just doesn't mention it. <laughs> <laughs> so nothing happened. <laughs> yeah, just nothing skip that it. day, skip that day. All right, let's move to the other side of the world. I remember the Zhou dynasty in China. Yep, King Li. Yeah, they have been doing hanging in there for 200 years already. And they have this Gonghi Regency. They kick, they put the king in exile. Right. And then they put his son in training. And then they had a regency that ruled Zhou China. But in exile, in 828 BC, King Li dies. And thus the regency has to put the prince on the throne as the king, because he is the true Yu king. And they do. So this sounds like a recipe for disaster. Like, why would the regency give up their power? And Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Why would this guy not be a tyrant if he gained power? But it all works out. So they educated Prince Swan to be a great king. And uh, he seems to be doing a great job for all of the A20s. Wow, nice. So nice to see a plan that works. <laughs> in A27 BC, Diane Asher is back in Urartu. And uh, the details are lost, except for the words to the Manians. So he probably took a detour to the east to beat up the Manians. 
Do you even remember the Manians? I remember the name, but that's about it. They are uh, right to the east of Lake Urmia. It's uh, the east of, to the east of Assyria and to the southeast of Urartu. Okay. Uh, while these powerful kingdoms are uh, doing their thing, the Manias are actually growing as well. And they probably have the Persians and the Medes as their vassals at this point. They are in the Sagros Mountains mm -hmm. in uh, what is today Iran. And they are actually doing uh, quite a good job themselves. So we will see more Assyrian campaigns like randomly go east, but there seems to be not much to gain there except horses. And now in 828 BC, something extraordinary happens in Assyria. Hmm. What's that? We lose all the sources. There is nothing written for seven years. Really? Yeah, and when this happens, it will happen at other times, but when the sources grow silent, you know that Assyria is in dire straits. Because they can't write down any super accomplishment. Yes. And nobody really knows what happened during these seven years, but we will get the report in 820 BC when the sources pick up again. And this report is probably filled with lies. <laughs> but we will cover this in uh, two episodes. We'll talk about the black obelisk of Assyria. But the empire will be gone from our story for seven years. Wow. And of course, the neighboring countries uh, get a reprieve. <laughs> and let's see how they use it. Is it all for peace and prosperity <laughs> and love? Um, probably not. <laughs> uh, the Neo-Hittite and the Armenian kingdoms in Syria are the first to notice because they have been um, yeah, beat up by the Assyrians a lot. And now... Um, most of them are Assyrian vassals at this point. Uh, there is an Assyrian garrison at Tilbarsip, but it seems to be preoccupied by whatever is going on in Assyria. And then the demands for tribute disappear. So uh, what to do? Suddenly the Assyrians are not putting pressure on these states. And the most powerful state in uh, the vicinity of Syria is Aram Damascus. And the second one is Israel. So their first reaction then, uh, Aaron Damascus ruled by Hazael and Israel ruled by Jehu. They immediately start fighting with each other. Because that's what they really <laughs> want to do. Yeah. And the Assyrians have just been a problem for their internal war. But now they can pick it up. And yeah, uh, yeah nothing much happens really. And that's what we needed to talk about before we could get to the siblings. Queen Dido and King Pygmalion of Tyre. It's all coming back around now. Yeah, this is semi-legendary material and we are sort of on a loose footing here. But we know some things for sure. And I will tell the story as I think it happened. But we, we are not, we are on a bit of loose ground here. Okay. So because of the Assyrian demands, Tyre has grown very powerful because Tyre can supply. Tyre is the, the number one Phoenician city on the coast of Lebanon. They are trading all over the Mediterranean. Uh, and this is because the Assyrians are forcing them to do all this trade. They wanted to, but now they had to speed it up to pay the demands, the tribute. 
uh, but it's actually working out great for Tyre. Uh, there is a sharing of power then between Pygmalion and Dido, but the people, they uh, prefer the boy king, because they think it's, it's a bit weird to have a woman ruling you. <laughs> so Dido has to look for alliances, and she then marries her uncle, the former king's uh, younger brother, Acerbas. Nacerbas has been spending his time being the high priest of Melkart and uh, amassing a lot of wealth like a good Phoenician should. So he is super rich, probably the richest man in Phoenicia. And he has hidden his treasure because he fears that King Pygmalion will take it. Uh, the boy king then has nothing to do with the, the play Pygmalion or My Fair Lady. <laughs> <laughs> That Pygmalion was a sculptor in Cyprus, also in ancient times, but a lot later than this. I gotcha. This Pygmalion is the king of Tyre between 831 and 785 BC, so he will be the king for a long time. That's bad for Dido, probably. Uh, there is something called the Nora Stone that was found in Sardinia in 773 that references this king. So it seems to be a historical person. But the one thing standing in his way then to seize full power in Tyre is his uncle, Acerbas. So he decides that the, the best solution to this is to send soldiers and murder his uncle. <laughs> so very subtle. Right. So the soldiers kill his uncle or there's an assassination or somehow Acerbas dies. But uh, the treasure is hidden so he doesn't find all the legendary wealth of Acerbas. And he wants to torture his sister. But now the people of Tyre stepped in and they, they preferred him, but they still like the queen. So uh, Pygmalion, sensitive to the opinion of the populace, decides that, what, what do I do now? And he is looking for a way out. And uh, his sister offers uh, a marriage proposal. This is not unknown in Egypt, but it's still... She offers to move into the palace, it's not sure if it's a marriage proposal. Oh, okay. And also the priests of Melkart are very angry because the high, their high priest was murdered. <laughs> and now Pygmalion fears uh, divine retribution here. And then he realizes that if Dido moves into the palace with him, he can probably control her, and then he has control of Tyre. But Dido is acting uh, here. She's doing stuff without the king knowing. So she's talking to all these nobles that are scared of the new king. And she amasses, uh, she tells her servants, she gives her servants a lot of bags, the sacks with stuff in them. And it's, they're filled with sand. Mm hmm. But the servants don't know that, so they are instructed to throw the bags into the sea. And the servants are told that this is a Serba's treasure. So the sacks of sands are thrown into the sea. And it, the reason they should throw his treasure into the sea is because Melkart will be placated. Melkart will be happy if he gets the treasure. And yeah. uh, It's a sacrifice. And this information gets to Pygmalion then, so he's like, no, the treasure is gone! <laughs> and then Dido decides to flee. So she, she gathers the nobles that don't like Pygmalion, 
And then she tells her servants, wow, you just threw the treasure of Azerbas into the sea. Can you imagine what the king will do to you? And the servants go, oh, no, but you told us to. <laughs> wow. She's like, better come with me. So she gets a, a lot of servants and nobles. And then they steal the, the fleet. A big part of the fleet uh, of Tyre. And they go. So they get away from the king, go into the Mediterranean. And uh, they have a priest of uh, Baal. It says uh, a lot of this. Dido is a prominent figure in the Ainid, and we'll talk about the Ainid at some later point. But this is the great. Did you hear about this in school? The tale of Aeneas. Um, yes, we did. No, because we don't hear about this in school in Sweden. Oh, really? But I hear they they talk about it in American. Yeah, in we schools. do. The Aeneid and. Uh... The Iliad, the Odyssey, all those. Do you remember anything about uh, about the Aeneid? Oh gosh, no. <laughs> it's been too. This long. is the tale of the founding of Rome, and Rome had two conflicting foundation stories. Mm-hmm. One was the Trojan prince Aeneas, who founded Rome, and the other one was Romulus and Remus. So Augustus, during his great moral campaign. Uh, the first emperor of Rome, mm-hmm. he decided that he needed, he hired a good writer to write the Aeneid, which would be the great uh, epic tale of Rome. And there they would unite these two foundation myths into one. So they, so making both foundation myths true. And in this book, Dido is a very, uh, very b- big character. And we'll have to address this in uh, an upcoming episode. Uh, We'll actually talk about it very soon. But we have this big party of Phoenicians going into the Mediterranean. They pass by Cyprus and there they pick up 80 beach prostitutes. (laughs) 80 sacred beast prostitutes. Okay. Just just prostitutes that live on the beach? (laughs) And are sacred. And our sacred, okay. I have not discovered what this means, but I'm sure it's important. I I think we live in a poor world where there are no sacred beach prostitutes. <laughs> but they join this uh, band of refugees, and it's probably because they need women to found to find a new home and be a new people. If you want, if you want your city to survive, you better be making babies. I, I I can't help but picture just 80 hot girls sitting on the beach <laughs> doing religious stuff and being prostitutes. It's like it's super weird. Yeah, that's that's crazy. But hey, that was also 27, 2800 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yes, when being a sacred beach prostitute meant something. <laughs> so, Where have our fundamental Values gone, Dan. <laughs> Where are the 80 beach prostitutes? <laughs> but Cyprus is way too close to Tyre. So uh, yeah. Tyre's influence is over Cyprus. So they can't stay there. They have to go west. And they have to find a new home. And they will, in three or four episodes, we'll talk about where they go. And that's it for today. 
think you mentioned where they go a long time ago. We're talking, I'm talking like ten episodes ago. I because, think I did. Yeah, gosh, I can't keep a secret. Yeah, no, no. You have heard of the place they go to. Yeah. Hmm. And this is the reason then for uh, a lot of things that happen in uh, in the history of Rome. That's okay. why the Romans are so obsessed with this tale. Everybody's That's, looking for legitimacy. We still will not talk much about Rome before 616 BC, when Rome will enter our story as an Etruscan city. So no Romulus and Remus on this podcast, because they are a fairy tale. Yep, they don't exist. <laughs> All right. Suckle. Our babies do not suckle wolves. No. <laughs> if they want to live. Yeah, yeah, yeah they would not last long. <laughs> there is another people we'll talk about next time. Oh, yeah? What's what's coming up? It's the Greeks. Greeks. The Greeks are getting out of the Dark Age. Finally. And they will kind of take over this podcast. And they will start next episode by founding their very first colony. Well, well. And it's, uh, you can have a guess where it is, but it's uh, probably not where you expect it to be. <laughs> I expect it to be in Spain. Oh, the first Phoenician colony was in Spain. So Exactly. <laughs> I'm saying they're just following an established route. <laughs> <laughs> they are, but uh, it's not in Spain. Okay. All right, well, folks, tune in next time, and you will find out. Please go to the YouTube slash Fan of History. Like and subscribe and share. Tell people about it. Also, give us a review on iTunes. We love to see any kind of review. Um, Patreon.com slash Fan of History. And also, um, when you subscribe... If you give us a review on iTunes, um, I'm I'm sure Dan and Dan and or I can respond in some way to at least be amusing. And um, we will read your review here. We will, even if you hate us. Even if you, yeah, even if you go down to the detail, saying, Dan, you know what you're talking about. That Brennan guy, what is he even doing there? That's fine. You tell us <laughs> what you think. <laughs> we just appreciate you listening. <laughs> also, if you become a patron at patreon.com slash fanofhistory, uh, we will shout you out here and in the YouTube show. But uh, there is an option on Patreon. If you, if you set it to no rewards, uh, we will not shout you out. So uh, we have new patrons, but uh, they all set these options. I'm starting to wonder if this is the default setting. So if you want a shout out, make sure you are you are telling us that you want your uh, patron rewards. We will gladly do it. Absolutely. We'll actually, if you enter the Patreon high enough, we'll do uh, special episodes for you. You get to choose the the subject. Any historical subject. And I will do the voices. Yes. <laughs> so there you go. All right. Well, for this week, I am Brennan. And I'm Dom. And this has been the Fan of History. 
If oh, you yeah. enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Patreon.com slash fan of history. Just a dollar an episode would help us out. Thanks, and see you next time. <laughs>